Good afternoon comrades. So podcast two we are going to be continuing on with issue one. Um, last day we were having a look at the factors that are really affecting the security of the Sarah state before that of 1905. We were having a look at oppressive SARS policies. We were looking at controlling of the state between uh, before 1905. We were having a look at the oppressive state infrastructure and how there is corruption. But there is this element of revolutionary ideas as well that is starting to circulate. We were also really predominantly having a look at the background of the Russian Empire, that by in the late 1800s, that Russia was the largest country in the world. It was stretching from the Black Sea in Europe to the Bering Straits in the extreme east of Asia, which brings a lot of complications to ruling such a vast state, because how is it that one man with absolute power can actually govern his people when you have a whole set of nationalities, you have corruption, you have, yes, a local council which is established, which is, if you remember from our podcast one this semester, but still it's quite difficult trying to monitor what is taking place. And the question and the theme that really was coming through with our first lesson, it's the idea if there is this element of fear and the use of army that is really being used to control the people because it is fragile of what has taken place. We've seen the bloody assassination of Tsar Alexander II, the man who is deemed responsible for freeing that of the serfs. His own son, Alexander III, sees this and then just about turns all his father's reforms, no particularly you know, in the justice, in the courts. And we have a whole 360 that is going around. And really how this viewpoint would have been bestowed and entrenched upon Nicholas II to really live up to his father's image here as being a true and devout believer in autocratic rule. It has a population of approximately 100 million. Half of these were ethnic Russians, but the remainder also are including Germans, Poles, Slavs, as well as also Asians as well. Almost every major religion was represented with this diverse population. Compared to Western Europe, the Russian Empire was politically, economically and socially backwards. There was little industry and vast majority of the population were that of peasant farmers. And we were having a look at last day in terms of that statistic, you know, you've got 77% of um, the population here are serfs, um, are former peasants. But yet when you have a look at the nobility, it's really amounting to 1%. And whilst there's nobility, it does make 1%, but they are owning 25% here of the land in Russia. They also worked in agricultural system, which changed very little since that of the Middle Ages. You know, we still have wooden plows that are being used. Most of the population are also illiterate, and many still existed as serf slaves under the control of wealthy landowners as well. Particularly when we had a look at the czar's methods of control, just to quickly recap here, um, the key terminology that you should have picked up and left with um, podcast one is the pillars of um, autocracy. The idea that we have a very, very autocratic government, that the vast, diverse empire is ruled by a series of czars. They ran the country as autocrats and this meant that the czar was the only person who is um, governing Russia. And the czar believed the divine right to rule Russia, their position and power had been given to them by God and God alone. And therefore, no one can question them when it comes to this absolute power. Nobility accounted for approximately um, a percentage here of the population that the upper class owned all the land and was dependent on the Tsar. They dominated the army command and civil service. The civil service helped the Tsar run the Russian Empire. Administrators and officials carried out the instructions of the Tsar and his ministers. They were appointed and paid by that of the Tsar. They owed their positions to the Tsar and were undoubtedly loyal to him. Very much sycophants. To oppose him would mean losing power and losing position. And that's something we really talked about in our last podcast. You know, that these people that are getting this position as a minister or leading that of an army are not necessarily qualified. It's all about their class that gets them that role. 
In terms of the law, that the Tsarist legal system was designed to support autocracy and Tsarist authority. It was also a tend to suppress opposition and increase fear amongst the population. The standard punishment for opponents of the Tsar was exiled to the remote region of Siberia. Many thousands of people viewed as enemies of the state were sent to Siberia. They were also far away so they had little chance of threatening Tsar's power. The empire did not have an elected parliament and there was no elections for positions in that of the government. There was no legal or constitutional methods by which the Tsar's power could be challenged in the state. One of the key factors that is really emphasising his absolute power is that of the Akara, which you know is the secret police. So the Tsar's will is reinforced by this large police system that would report suspicious behaviour and destroy any subversive groups. So the secret police had a vital role in identifying and spying on their enemies. They had the power to arrest potential threats as required. Agents of the Akara worked undercover, infiltrating groups that might represent a danger to the Tsar. They acted on the Tsar's behalf, treating citizens how they saw fit. And their methods included torture as well as that of murder as well. Another key pillar here of autocracy is that of the army member. We're talking about the comrade Cossack, the loyal Cossacks. That they have a large army that became very effective means of enforcing that of the power. The Tsar was the supreme commander of the army and would delay units, um, sorry, deploy units as well. At times, civil unrest, he would often dispatch elite Cossack cavalry regiments to deal with unruly citizens. Tsar Nicholas II suppressed strikes in Rostov in 1902 and Odessa in 1903, using that of the Cossacks. The Orthodox Church is another pillar here of our autocracy. So the Tsar was the head of the Orthodox Church. The Church reinforces authority. Official Church doctrine stated that the Tsar was appointed by God. Any challenge to the Tsar, known as the Little Father, would say to be a direct insult upon God. The church was very influential among a largely peasant population. It made sure that the message was conveyed regularly to them. Priests explained to their followers that Russia was God's land and he intended for life to be as the peasants found it. The church also gave financial rewards from the Tsar for this propaganda. Most of the Russian population was illiterate and had to rely on what they were told by the church. It was only the source of education and they tended to believe the teachings of the priest. However, priests were often not respected by their peasants, often believed that they were increasingly corrupt and hypocritical, and the word of the church came less respected during the rule of Nicholas II. So just to recap here the difficulties before we go on to have a look at modernisation. So the only genuine limit to the power and influence of the Tsar was the sheer expanse of the empire and the scale of corruption and incompetence on the part of his ministers and state officials. However, revolutionary ideas were also on the increase. The far-flung corners of the empire, some thousands of miles from Moscow, often proved ungovernable. But the scale of the empire, the poor infrastructure and the nature of the population also made it difficult for the opposition for the Tsar to grow. We have the bulk of population was mostly illiterate peasant farmers. This made it difficult to spread liberal or revolutionary ideas using books or pamphlets. Peasants lived largely in remote, widely dispersed villages. It was not easy for them to unite or to challenge that of the mighty Tsar. The poor state of roads and the railways made it difficult for ideas to spread. But there are revolutionary ideas that are being typed in here to society. So as a result of the Tsar's unlimited power and the only way to challenge Tsar's autocracy was through acts of rebellion, opposition groups began to grow as a consequence of the success of Tsar's refusal to grant reform and improve living conditions. Liberals wanted an emerging middle class to increase political influence. Western European countries had developed constitutional governments and increased political right for their citizens. Many liberal thinkers wanted the same for Russia. Radical opposition groups often carried out political assassinations. Populism existed in the universities while the People's Will or the Naravara Volia, as you know it, tried to assassinate Alexander III in 1887. 1903 to 1904 became known as the Years of the Red Cockerel where peasants seized a great deal of land in the countryside. Marxist thinking had developed in Russia in the late 1800s. Karl Marx had promoted the idea that power should be in the hands of the masses Revolutionary groups which combined Marx's aims with their own goals then developed. 
the social revolutionaries adopted a com combination of Marxist and populist defeat beliefs. They wanted to overthrow the government in favour of giving power to the peasants. Although they were greatly uncoordinated in their efforts, they carried out approximately 2,000 political assassinations in the years leading up to 1905 revolution. The Social Democrats' beliefs were based on Marxism. They did not expect the peasants to rise in revolution. They focused on agitation amongst the workers in the cities. In 1903, the group split after an ideological disagreement. The Mesheviks, led by Marfo, wanted revolution from below by that of the workers to occur naturally. However, the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, wanted revolution should become about as soon as possible. Part of them would be held by a small group, the dictatorship of the proletariat, until the workers were ready to rule themselves. At the turn of the century, the Russian civil service can be seen as also backward and selfish. Many civil servants were poorly paid, resulting in a widespread bribery. Persuasive civil servants could easily influence Tsar Nicholas II, who was unsure of himself and also indecisive. Promotion relied more and more of years of service rather than of competence. Many bureaucrats had little understanding of the importance of industrialisation. The vast expanse of the empowerment of taxation was difficult to organise and police, and hence government income was often that of inadequate in that of the state. So the policies that are really coming through from Tsarist methods, we've got censorship. You know, that censorship was widespread in Russia. We've got the freedom of the speech was severely restricted. All books and newspapers were suppressed so that people would not be influenced by liberal or socialist ideas. Any material was thought to be dangerous was banned. Any person here trying to circulate banned books or newspapers ran the risk of being detected by the Okara. We also have Russification as well, which was a policy of enforcing Russian culture on the vast numbers of ethnic minorities that lived in the Russian Empire. It greatly affected the Poles, Lithuanians and that of the Ukrainians. Russia was the official language of all others were suppressed. Poles were banned from speaking or learning languages in many places, learning their own language. Russian orthodoxy was promoted and Catholic monasteries were closed. Often the Orthodox Church would take over former Catholic churches. During Nicholas II's reign, the Black Hundreds was formed. This was an extreme national movement that supported the Tsar. They assassinated pro-democratic politicians and in intimidated the workers in the towns. So the fear of the acquire was widespread as a result of their considerable power and terrifying tactics. They helped to suppress any opposition to the Tsar. The acquire were also deemed to censor anything that they deemed to be unsuitable. Its network of spies infiltrated political organisations. This made it difficult to tell if a new recruit was a gen revolutionary or that of an acquire agent. They suspected an opposing or criticising of the state did not have the right to trial. They declared guilty and sentenced immediately. So imagine that in terms of, you know, if you are suspected of being a critic, that automatically you are executed. You're not going to have a trial here. So how this would really reverberate around that to the lower classes in society, that there really is no due process. And any political prisoner was also exiled to that of Siberia. So that's just a wee recap, but also like tapping into some of the things that we're going to be talking today, particularly when it comes to peasants and the policy of Russification. So we're really going to focus on modernisation. We're going to have a look at the other problems. Um, tomorrow I'll be doing a podcast on just a recap of all the different political groups. And it's just to ensure that you're doing your note taking as we're going through this. So if we have a look here now at modernisation... So in 1815, Russia was the leading power in Europe. Napoleon's invasion in 1812 had been repulsed and the Russian army, the most powerful in the world, had liberated Europe. In 1814, Alexander I had ridden through Paris in triumph and dominated the Congress of Vienna, which produced a settlement for Europe after 20 years of war. In the 100 years after 1815, maintaining great power status was a high priority for Russians, However, defeat in the Crimea War in 1854-56 was a huge blow to Russian prestige. Russia had been fighting on her own territory against Britain and France. The inadequacies of Russian rifles and supplies highlight the shortcomings of her industry and communications. The case for modernisation was unanswerable and reforms of Alexander II followed. 
Russia had prospective enemies to the west, south and east. The unification of Germany in 1871 created a potential threat from which was one of the fastest growing industrial states. To counter this threat in 1891, Russia formed an alliance with France with the added bonus of French loans to help finance modernisation. Alec Nov points out that Witt's public statements and papers make it clear that the dominant motive behind this industrialization policy was to allow Russia to catch up with the more developed powers, particularly in her potential to produce the means of national power above all armaments. So to be a great power in the 20th century and for the Tsar and the ruling elite, the, what they predominantly want here is a major role on the world stage. For that, it means Russia has to modernise. It has lagged behind Western competitors in industrial and technological capacity. It had to industrialise to have any hope of matching countries like America, Germany, Britain and France. And a strong industrial base was needed to provide weapons, ships, munitions and other military equipment required for modern warfare. Russia also needed to modernise to raise the standard of living for ordinary people. It was a poor backward country and had to increase its general wealth to bring the peasants out of poverty and to take surplus labour off the overcrowded land and into the towns. So Sergei Witt here, who is our finance minister from 1892 to that of 1903, is the architect of Russian industrialization. Russia had huge reserves of oil, iron, coal and timber. The problem was how to exploit them, how to actually make use of these. And we believed that because Russia was so far behind other countries, the state had to play a large role in simulating industrial growth. He launched Russia into an age of heavy industry, using the railways as a springboard. What was the kind of holy passion for railways and saw them as agents of civilization and progress? The railway would not only provide better communications between cities for the movement of people and goods, but they would also stimulate demand for iron, steel, coal and other industries. There was a railway boom in the 1890s and the extent of railway tracks had nearly doubled. So particularly here, if we have a look at the numbers. So in 1866, we have 3,000 miles of track for railway growth. In 1881, we've got 13,270. 1891 we've got 19,510, by 1900 we have 33,270 and by 1913, just before the First World War starts, we've got 43,850. So by the end of the 1890s then, nearly 60% of all iron and steel was consumed by the railways. Witt's most famous project was the Trans-Siberian Railway which was the most symbolic than economic importance, although it did help develop Western Siberia. The government needed a lot of money to invest in the railways and to expensive capital equipment, such as machinery used to manufacture goods, in order to establish a sound engineering and manufacturing base. The big question was, where was the money going to come from? And what came up with two sources. So the first one that he uses is foreign investment. So he negotiated huge loans, particularly from the French, also encouraged the influx of foreign money. Witt adopted the gold standard, which meant that the ruble, the Russian currency, had a fixed gold content. This gave it strength when exchange with other currencies. However, paying the interest rates to service foreign debt was a major drain on resources. The Russian people themselves, who of course were mainly peasants, he increased their direct taxes and indirect taxes on everyday items such as salt and alcohol. Peasants had to sell more grain to pay their taxes, which allowed it to increase grain exports. Also, to protect their developing industry, Russia imposed extremely high tariffs on foreign industrial commodities. This made many goods very expensive for Russians to buy, notably agricultural machinery. Workers' wages were kept low, so the money went back into the industrial development rather than into wage bills. He was squeezing the people very hard, especially the peasants, in order to pay interest on loans and protecting fledging industry. So, very problematic here. You know, we're getting loans from France, which you have to pay back. Obviously, with loans, you'd pay an interest. You're fixing your currency to that of um, a gold content, which means that, you know, 
when it's up against other different currencies here that it's really going to be draining resources in Russia that the Russian people here are actually paying more taxes they're the ones that are the worst off and they really are being squeezed here quite tight so just if you're wanting to, to break this down so when it comes to what stimulation plan for industrial growth industrial growth sorry no, first of all, we're going to have state-sponsored development of heavy industry. We've got our foreign loans, investments and expertise. We've got the strong ruble that has adopted a gold standard. We've got raised taxation. We've got high tariffs on foreign industrial goods. And we're also relying on the railways here as well. So the drive for industrialization was a top-down state-sponsored model to an extent unequaled by any Western country. By 1899, the state have bought almost two-thirds of metallurgical production, controlled 70% of the railways and owned numerous mines and oil fields. Critics argue, though, that the emphasis on heavy industry meant that light industry such as textiles was often neglected, and particularly so that the development of smaller sophisticated machine tools and electrical industries would have reduced the needs for imports and helped modernise manufacturing. Furthermore, Whit had neglected agriculture, which suffered from underinvestment. Whit relied not only on foreign loans, but also foreign expertise. He bought in a large number of foreign companies, engineers and experts to help kickstart Russian industry in the modern age. They came from France, Britain, Germany, Sweden and other European countries. They were particularly evident in new industrial areas in the south and west, particularly in the, on the Donbass region and the oil industry around the Banku. Witt encouraged the growth of private enterprise and although his critics accused him of creating a dangerous and shameful dependence on foreigners, a new class of go-ahead Russian industrials, entrepreneurs and businessmen began to emerge, especially in Moscow. Witt hoped that industrial growth would take off and create more wealth for everyone before the squeeze on the workers and peasants hurt too much. Up until 1900, his plan seemed to be working. The growth in the industry was remarkable, for example, between 1890 and 1900, the production of iron and steel had risen from 9 to 76 million pods a year, coal output tripled and the production of cotton cloth increased by two thirds. The growth rate in 1890s hit 9%, towns increased in size, by 1897 Moscow had 1.5 million inhabitants and St Petersburg over 2 million. Moscow, by the turn of the century, was the fastest growing east of New York and one of the 10 biggest cities in the world. But yet, while there is this drive towards modernization, there's also going to be dilemmas and problems as well. So the contradictions of modernization. So the dilemma for Nicholas II was that whilst modernization was desirable in many respects, it also posed a serious threat to the czarist society and regime. When millions move from the countryside to the cities to work in factories, it's inevitable that we're going to have an increase here in population in that of the cities. What happens then with that? Well, you're going to have inadequate housing that is going to be constructed. You're going to have people working in poor conditions. And also, particularly because people are finding very much disenchantment and discontentment when they get to the cities, things could come more volatile. So they would find it easier than the peasants to take concentrated action because they were concentrated in large numbers in the city. So if there's something that they're not happy with, you can do a strike and that strike will have consequences. Now because of it, we're starting to see a more educated workforce because what here favours the spread of technical education. So it means then you have people that are going to be more able to challenge the government. You have the growth in the middle classes, which would create pressure for political change for more accountable and representative government. Most modern industrial countries had democracies and parliaments in which the middle classes featured strongly and would have the power of the monarch limited, whereas we see a different case scenario in that of Russia. So particularly what historians, particularly what uh, Roger would say here for his account of modernization and revolution in his book Russia in the Age of Modernization. He goes on to say that Witt hoped and believed that industrialization would transform Russian society, but to become industrialized Russia first had to be transformed. 
At least both processes had been moved at comparable speeds, but this demanded that the country, its people, and indeed the world, would hold still as to speak for a known length of time, while industry performed its work of transformation. Equality at home and peace abroad were essential, and the former especially would be difficult to maintain in the midst of the strains in which the country was being subjected. Even if there was a greater supply of political intelligence or flexibility on the part of Russian's rulers, industrialization was bound to threaten political stability and instability to endanger WITS policies. So particularly here, you can see how there is growing concern about what is going to take place. And particularly Sergei Witt here, just to have we comment on him. So he was born in Georgia in 1849 and he spent most of his years in the Caucasus region. After graduating from the University of Odessa, he worked at the Odessa Railway and became an expert in railway administration. This led to the appointment in 1889 to the Railway Department of the Ministry of Finance. His growing reputation soon saw him promoted in 1892 as the post of Minister of Communications and then to Minister of Finance in 1893. It was in this role that he drove and pushed for industrialisation. He was by far the most able minister in the government and the best over the Tsar to peacefully modernise Russia before 1905. However, he was imposed on more conservative elements in the government and court circles who would not support his programme for change. Their antagonism and criticism contributed to his dismissal in 1903. He was an outsider with a background in business but was married to a Jewish divorcee and they did not trust or they did not like him. This in part made it his difficult personality to deal with, but described uh, various as tricky, evasive, boastful and quarrelsome. However, he was also very energetic, highly organised and intellectually um, unparalleled, hard above the officials and politicians at the time. Although it was a firm supporter of autocracy, by 1905 he had come to believe that some constitutional reform was necessary in the part of the progress of modernising Russia. Nicholas brought him back in the midst of the chaos in 1905 and negotiated a successful peace settlement between Japan and to end the Russian-Japanese War. Witt was then made Prime Minister, the role he secured final loans and kept the regime from bankruptcy. He persuaded Nicholas to sign the October Manifesto, guaranteeing concessions to the middle classes and establishing a Duma or that of a parliament. However, in 1906 he was discovered that Nicholas never intended to honour these concessions and he resigned. For his part, Nicholas never forgave Witt for pushing through constitutional change and what was ostracised from the Russian establishment until his death in 1915 here. So got a predominant issue when it comes to industrial and modernisation. But what are the three other pressing concerns here when it comes to Tsarist Russia, what we'll cover today? So the peasants, the urban workers and national minorities and Russification. And then we'll have a look at political opposition tomorrow since very much in depth, we need to talk about Karl Marx in length and talk about communism and particularly in terms of how we move from feudalism to that of socialism to that of communism. So to begin here, the peasants made up the vast bulk, almost 80% of the population. In the main, they were poor and life was hard and unremitting. They harboured a whole raft of grievances dating back to their emancipation in 1861. Although they had been freed and given plots of land, the peasants were forced to pay for these by making yearly redemption payments to the government. Many could not afford the payments and were driven into debt. What made things worse was that the plots that they were often too small to make a reasonable living, so many had to supplement their earnings by working on the estates of nobility. This was exasperated in the second half of the 19th century when a huge increase in population put even greater pressure on land. The peasants felt betrayed by the emancipation. They believed that the land really belonged to the people who worked it, them. They wanted the rest of the big estates to be given to them to work freely as independent landowners. There was always a threat of peasant uprisings which made the Tsar's regime unstable. These risings usually took place when harvests were bad and the peasants were starving. At this time, they would have little to lose. The peasants were also subject to restrictions being placed on them by their own village commune or mir, M-I-R, which could be a blessing and a curse. The mir assemblies were quite democratic. Sorry, the mir assemblies um, run on cooperative basis and offered mutual support. Yes, they were democratic, allowing for the views to be voiced before the decisions were reached, although older or richer peasants tended to be more influential. 
It was an equalitarian institution in which strips of land were allocated to a household according to its size, and this could be reviewed if the size of the household changed. Widespread, this did not usually lead to efficient agriculture. The market could also be quite restrictive. Peasants could not move freely from place to place without permission and could be flogged or imprisoned without a trial. It found ways to punish those who would not toe the line, for instance, to select the conscripts for the army. Agriculture was central to the development of Russian economy. It was essential that it modernise and mechanise in order to produce enough grain to feed the people of Russia and to sell abroad to earn foreign currency. Many peasants were still using an outdated strip system of farming with few animals and inadequate tools such as wooden ploughs. This led to substance farming rather than production for the market. The picture was not the same all over Russia. Some parts were doing quite well, especially in the south and the west. Recent evidence suggests that agriculture was in much a better state than historians have previously thought. It was argued that for more entrepreneurial peasants called Kulaks, that's K-U-L-A-K-S, were buying up and renting land from the nobility, experiencing with crops, cultivate market gardens to feed the expanding towns. There is also evidence to suggest that some communes were progressive and anxious to put farming methods into practice. Agriculture output at the end of the 19th century was going up year on year. So you can see there in terms of the problems that we have, nearly 80% of the population is peasants. Very restrictive. It's almost like the feudal system and what they're being subjected to medieval styles of um, repression as well, being forced to be conscripts into army, having inadequate systems to work with, such as wooden ploughs. So is there something inevitable that's going to come around from them challenging the Tsar's state? The urban workers, so we've touched upon this about you no know, high living conditions, poor wages, um, also as well about how things are getting a bit more volatile and if you have a mass of urban workers that are disenchanted it's more likely that a strike action here could take place that are more concentrated. Even by the 1900s the urban workers only numbered around about 3 million, 2.5% of the population. Most of the workers were ex-peasants although by 1900 almost one third had fathers had been workers in the mines or factories or the railways. Many retained close links to their villages and often returned particularly at harvest time to work on the land. Working conditions were grim, long hours or normally over 11 hours a day, but often longer were compounded by a harsh environment where workers were disciplined and fined for the smallest infractions. Accidents causing death or serious injury were common, and there was also a high rate of disease and illness related to the conditions of the workplace. Wages were indeed very low, barely enough to even live on. Living conditions were no better. Large numbers of workers lived in barrack-style accommodation next to the factories or mines in which they worked. They were dirty and unsanitary. It was not known for workers coming off shift that led to the beds and the workers going on shift when the factories were going on for 24 hours a day. Privacy was a luxury with men, women and children living alongside each other, separated by curtain, cooking, eating arrangements. So think about it in terms of, you have this barrack style housing in which you know men, women and children are all sleeping alongside each other. There's only a curtain to separate things. So things like you know cooking, eating, sleeping sexual relations as well it's all very much open people know what is happening as well so very um inadequate housing has been provided for these workers so they often lived in huge tenement blocks where things were no better although they did not form a large proportion of the population the urban workers were militant and posed a real threat to the authorities there were several reasons why it is that they compose such a threat well, obviously, they really do resent the harsh conditions in which they find themselves. You, you could actually argue it's more like slavery rather than that of something worker-wise. Though you could say, particularly if you've seen things like the mill or you've had a look at the industrialisation in Britain, things weren't by any far, far off. You know, you've got your slum housing, you've got your tenant housing. But it is worse off for these urban workers here in Russia because particularly, you know, things such as strikes shouldn't happen um, there's laws against that. You know, the wages are incredibly low from where everywhere else has been in this industrialised western part. There's also exploitation was especially bad in small workshops. Um, there was high literacy rates. So we've now gone up to a literacy rate here of 57.8%, which brings with it difficulties because this is when you're going to be able to read um, political 
newspapers, uh, literature that is talking about Marx. It could be from the social revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, the liberals as well, the cadet party as well. So particularly if these people are talking about revolutionary ideas in terms of, well, you know, according to Marx, you know, all power should be in that the working class. There should be an equal share among society. That's something that's going to resonate with people. People are going to have meetings, they're going to discuss and this is how strike actions and this is how revolutions are also born and conceived as well. So a significant section of Russian industry was concentrated in large complexes and huge factories. This was partly because of the heavy state involvement and partly because since Russia had been late to industrialise, it used the latest mass production techniques. Some factories like the Peltro, so that's P-U-T-I-L-O-V, Engineering works in St. Petersburg employed thousands of workers. This made it easier to organise politically and to create a unity of purpose and action. If the workers from these big plants went on strike, then thousands then can actually hit the street. And we'll see that in 1917. There's significant level of labour unrest by the 1890s, although phenomenal industrial growth benefited for some of the more skilled workers. Not much of this you will find its way to the mass of workers. Since Petersburg growing was very fast, it was also regarded as the most overcrowded and healthy city in Western Europe. The number of strikes increased in the last decade of the 19th century, even though to participate in a strike could lead to a prison sentence of one to three weeks. The textile workers in St. Petersburg mounted massive strikes in 1896 and 1897. So you can see there that there's already mumblings and murmurings just to see what can be done. <clears throat> so lastly, we're going to have a look at the national minorities and Russification. So many of the nationalities in the Russian Empire resented Russia control, particularly the policy of Russification, which had been imposed more rigorously in the second part of the 19th century. It was promoted by Alexander III and carried on by his son, Nicholas II. This policy involved making non-Russians use the Russian language instead of their own, they seen that with the Polish, and adopt Russian costumes and habits. Russian officials were brought in to run regional governments into non-Russian parts of the empire like Poland, Latvia and Finland. The Russian language was used in schools, law courts and regional government. For instance, in Poland it was forbidden to teach children in the Polish language. Poles could not be employed in government positions. Usually it was the Russians who got the most important jobs in government and had state-sponsored industry. What made it worse was that the minorities had to pay large sums to the imperial treasury. The emphasis on the superiority of the Russian way of life infuriated the national minorities who saw Russification as a fundamental attack on their way of life, their national and their cultural heritage, a monstrously unfair policy that discriminated against them. This was especially true in the respect of religion. The Catholic Church in Poland, the Georgian Orthodox Church, the Lutherans in uh, Lithuania and other religious sects all resented government interference in their religious practices. The Jews who formed a sizable ethnic group were forced to live in an area known as the Pale of Settlement. They suffered from a policy of anti-Semitic which placed social, political and economic restrictions upon them, encouraged by the authorities that they were subject to. And there was also frequent pogroms as well. Now a pogrom is something when you have um, an organised attack against a particular ethnic group. So you can see here about how there's a very strong nationalist agenda coming through in Russia and why this is going to create disturbances then throughout their empire. During the 19th century, there was a number of uprisings and protests from national groups seeking greater personal freedom and more autonomy. And we call this autonomy like self-government or the right of self-determination, where you can say, Do you know what, if we're living in an area that doesn't really particularly identify with Russian in terms of language, culture, um, identity, then should we not have autonomy and actually rule ourselves because we know our own ways? This tended to occur in a region at one time of the Tsar's regime was able to suppress them. It seems strange that the government sought to antagonise and alienate such a large section of its population. It drove many into the ranks of revolutionaries. For example, many Jews were found in revolutionary groups and in 1897 they formed their own bun or that of their own union as well. So just to summarise, you know, what we need to take away from this is that, you know, the Tsar is an autocratic ruler on the par, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, he's regarded as a god on earth. He's over of the Holy Synod, the highest church offic official, 
was a government minister appointed to run church affairs. This means the church and state were intertwined. Finance appointments were subject to Tsar's control. The Tsar's uh, edict's official orders were law. He had advisors and ministers, including the Imperial Council, the Council of Ministers and the Senate. But the Tsar chose all of these himself. The central government, based in the capital of St. Petersburg, but also depended on the provincial nobility for support. Civil servants were paid nobles, bureaucracy riddled with corruption and incompetence. Orders were passed down, but no provision uh, for suggestions for travel op upwards. World's largest army of 1.5 million conscripted serfs serving for 25 years. Army and navy was 45% of government spending. Higher ranks reserved for nobility and Cossacks were the league guards of privileges. And in the police state, there's no freedom of speech, press or travel. Strikes are forbidden. There's censorship. We also have our secret police, the uh, police, the Okara. Repression is referred to um, as a representative assembly and their sphere of liberal ideas. So particularly here, when you have a look at the evaluation of the Okara, you know, what side of the coin do you think it is? Um, Orlando Fix here says that no subject of the Tsar could sleep securely in his bed in the knowledge that his house would be subject to a search or to arrest um, himself. Um, or Ian Lachlan here says the regime lost about when hearts and minds in the war against the terror. So is the emergence of the secret police that alienate the group? Does fear have something to do when it comes to um, revolutions? And if, when you think about it in terms of, you know, if the government uses secret police to intimidate people, you know, to spy, to exile, to execute as well, would you oppose the government more or would you keep quiet for um, an easier life? In terms of the church, Orlando Fix here says that the church was an essential propaganda weapon and a means of social control. Because remember, when people are illiterate, you're getting all your information here from the church. Whereas Richard Pipe says that the impoverished, isolated and identified with the autocracy, the clergy commanded either love or that of respect. Because there is an element here that all propaganda of the Tsar's little father comes from that um, of the church. So when Russia is becoming more urban, People are coming to the cities, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg. People are getting a bit more educated. You can see that with the, the urban workers here that we have an increase of a literacy rate of 57.8%. Does this mean this educated society in the years leading up to 1905? Does this um, help or hinder the Orthodox Church in supporting that of the Tsar? So one of the key pillars of Tsar's rule is the Orthodox Church. You know, the Church is so heavily involved in teaching young Russians to be loyal. The fact that supports this is that they operated 40,000 schools across the empire. The church also encouraged Russians to regard the Tsar as his little father. Furthermore, priests were encouraged to report that any of their congregation who might oppose the Tsar to the authorities. Yet it can be argued that this was vital to maintaining Tsar's authority as the church and the huge amount of influence amongst the devout population. Controlling education also allowed the church to preach loyalty of an early and impressionable age. Conversely, many Russians were not able to be influenced by the church and they were not orthodox Christians. Russia's Jews and Muslim populations would come under this banner. So therefore, in evaluation, the church is unable to secure loyalty to that of the Tsar. Russia was becoming more urbanised and also less devout. The fact that in one of Moscow's suburbs there was only one church and one priest for a population of 40,000 indicates that the control of the church was actually waning. In terms of the army, when we're trying to evaluate here, um, its fundamental importance. You know, Orlando Figs has made three comments about the army, like nothing was closer to the Romanov court or more important to it than the military. If you think about the Cossacks, you know, how they're loyal um, guards. Uh, the government treatment of the army provoked growing resentment amongst the Russia's military elite because you'll see that when it comes to the First World War, but also when like the army is constantly being used to put down uprisings, that's not what necessarily it's there for. And the growing tensions between the military and every rank, and there's also, also the, the Romanov regime, which will come very apparent during that of the First World War. So the Russian army was used to underpin the Tsar's control. The military was an enormous force of around 1.5 million men, it was sent to crush revolts and had a network of garrisons across the empire. Soldiers swore loyalty directly to the Tsar, and many of the generals also had close family links to the Romanovs. Particularly loyal and brutal were the Tsar's elite regiment of that of the Cossacks. This was significant as the army was able to crush 1,500 revolts between 1883 and 1903, showing that it had the power to prevent revolution. 
the fearsome Cossacks were effective when they terrified Russians into remaining loyal. However, the loyalty of the army has been exaggerated. Many ordinary soldiers were resentful of the brutal conditions and some officers resented the fact that the promotion would be decided by birth, by not ability. In evaluation, we have a lick of Figs' point about how nothing is closer to the Romanov court or more important to it than the military. It suggests here that the army was pivotal in maintaining the autocracy, the pillars of autocracy. Its loyalty and sheer size meant that the opponents of Russia had no hope in overpowering it. But also with a double-edged sword here, the idea that if you lose the loyalty of your army, the pillars will come crumbling down and then the regime will come crumbling down after it. So particularly like those facts, like 1,500 times between 1883 to 1903, there used to be down uprisings. So does that really show us then that the Tsar is secure because he could use the army or insecure because he needs to have them at his side? In terms of um, Russification, Fig says that many of the nationalist leaders saw their country interests would be best served by preserving the union with Russia. But yet in his um, uh, book, he also talks about you know, the effects of Russification campaign to drive out non-Russians into the new anti-Tsars parties, that Russification cannot be called a success. Importantly, value friends such as the Finns and the Amarins were also alienated. So think about, you know, like there's even the Jewish persons that are being involved in revolutionary groups and in 1897 they formed their own union as well. So by really imposing a strong will of the Russian language and censoring those that aren't classified as Russian, is that alienating support? Does that make the state unstable by 1905? In terms of censorship, so Mariana Cholden says the czars and their ministers were afraid to let go of the reins of power and the result was suffocating. Censorship prevailed until 1905. Richard Pipe says for all its formidable rules, imperialist censorship was not entirely perforced. It was a nuisance, not a buyer to the free flow of ideas. So particularly, you know, we've got different viewpoints coming through here. You know, the czar was secure in power before 1905. The Akar and the army could intimidate and suppress opposition effectively. The Orthodox Church and censorship helped to mould on what people thought and Russification showed that the level of control that Nicholas was able to extract over his enormous empire. As a result, political opponents had little impact on the Tsar's state, especially when they were divided into their aims and methods. However, the Tsar's reliance on his pillars indicates a regime that was afraid and also insecure. As Russians became more urbanised, more educated and more political, the old order of the Orthodox Church censorship and Russification had less and less influence. The very fact that the Tsar felt the need to have the Okara and the frequent deployment of the army would suggest that in reality, the Tsar's state was fundamentally weak. And indeed, it is getting weaker and it's getting fragile as the time goes on. So particularly when you come to think of it, is there a showing here that by 1905 that we are in trouble? Um, we'll see particularly in not the next lesson, but the lesson after when we're having a look at 1905. We've got two key events that take place here. So is the breakdown of society inevitable by 1905 or is it inevitable when it comes to that of 1914? So it's to make sure that we are familiarising ourselves with this vast um, knowledge that is seeping through. So particularly to take away from today is modernisation, industrialization, how the country is being dragged through that of the industrial time. And you'll see particularly even when it comes to Stalin's premiership, when he is having a look at the great turn and moving on with rapid industrialization, he is going to be facing many different problems as well because Stalin like White faced the same problem of how to bring undeveloped Russia into the same level as the advanced nations because what really becomes apparent during the First World War is that the mighty state of Russia is inadequate and uh, when they become a communist state there's always this fear that there will be some foreign, foreign ambition and foreign invasion that will sweep on their shores so they need to make sure that they're ready for this and that's something that you'll see when it comes to Operation Barbarossa and the advancement of Nazi Germany. 
There are similarities in the solutions between Stalin and that of wit. Both drove Russia through a heavy industry and really are squeezing the peasants. And that's something to really look at that word choice is the idea of squeezing the serfs, squeezing the peasants. Because remember, they are the ones that are going to be paying the higher taxes. And it means then there's a more level here of disenchantment with that of the state as well. But there is a crucial difference. There is no foreign capital for communist Russia. White would have appreciated why and as indicated in a memo he had sent to the Tsar. He says, what sense is there for foreign states to give us capital? Why create with their own hands a more even terrible rival? For me, it's evident that in giving us capital, foreign countries commit a political error. And my own desire is that their blindness should continue for as long as possible. It's the idea that the nation of Russia really needs to get itself quickly advanced here because particularly after the unification of Germany that they have their enemies in that of the southwest as well. So guys I will see you by uploading the powerpoints uh, for this issue. So do make sure that you are making your notes on um, podcasts one and two. Also be having a look at the powerpoints that are going to be um, put up as well as word documents. Um, tomorrow we are going to be discussing the the political opponents. This is point four of the problems that are facing Russia before that of 1905. When we're going to have a look at the liberals, the revolutionaries that you know as populism and the people's will, the socialist revolutionaries, Marxists, have a look at Karl Marx and his ideas and philosophy. And very ironically, he had said in his publication that he believed the last place for a revolution to take place was in Russia. So how does this come about and how does Lenin's teachings come about? And really to have a look here at the Social Democrats and the Mesheviks and the Bolsheviks here too as well. So we'll be getting into that of the main story that is going to emerge. But as I said, this here really just come up um, as an essay title. There is some sources that we can also look at as well just for source practice as per se, but you would never get a source in an actual exam. This is all what changed with the new advanced higher changes being brought in. But it's just something to have a look at in terms of just making sure that we're consolidating our knowledge and understanding. So as always, if you have any questions, um, please do get in touch, fire me an email, put a message on Microsoft Teams. Um, hopefully you are enjoying the early start here of our story and particularly um, getting enthusiastic about Russian history. So enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy listening and I shall speak to you soon.